Chapter Eight of Clementina. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Clementina by A. E. W. Mason. Chapter Eight at Schlestadt. The little town of Schlestadt went to bed betimes. By ten o'clock, its burghers were in their nightcaps. A belated visitor going home at that hour found his footsteps ring upon the pavement with surprising echoes, and traversed dark street after dark street, seeing in each window perhaps a mimic moon, but no other light unless his path chanced to lie through Herzogstrasse. In that street a couple of windows on the first floor showed bright and unabashed, and the curious passer-by could detect upon the blind the shadows of men growing to monstrous giants and dwindling to pygmies according as they approached or retired from the lamp in the room. There were three men in that room, booted as for a journey. Their dress might have misled one into the belief that they were merchants, but their manner of wearing it proclaimed them soldiers. Of the three, one, a short, spare man, sat at a table with his head bent over a slip of paper, his peruke was pushed back from his forehead and showed that the hair about his temples was grey. He had a square face of some strength and thoughtful eyes. The second of the three stood by the window. He was perhaps a few years younger, thirty-six an observer might have guessed, to the others forty, and his face revealed a character quite different. His features were sharp, his eyes quick, if prudence was the predominating quality of the first, resource took its place in the second. While the first man sat patiently at the table, this one stood impatiently at the window. Now he lifted the blind, now he dropped it again. The third sat in front of the fire with his face upturned to the ceiling. He was a tall, big man with mighty legs which sprawled one on each side of the hearth. He was the youngest of the three by five years, but his forehead at this moment was so creased, his mouth so pursed up, his cheeks so wrinkled, he had the look of sixty years. He puffed and breathed very heavily. Once or twice he sighed, and at each sigh his chair creaked under him. Major O'Toole of Dillon's regiment was thinking. Gaydon said he suddenly. The man at the table looked up quickly. Missay, the man at the window turned impatiently. I have an idea. Missay shrugged his shoulders. Gaydon said, Let us hear it. O'Toole drew himself up. His chair no longer creaked. It groaned and cracked. It is a lottery, said he, and we have made our fortunes. We three are the winners, and so our names are not crossed out. But I have put no money in a lottery, objected Gaydon. "'Nor I,' said Missay. "'And where should I find money, either?' said O'Toole. "'But Charles Wogan has borrowed it for us, and paid it in, and so we're all rich men. "'What'll I buy with it?' Missay paced the room. "'The paper came four days ago,' he said. "'Yes, in the morning. Five days, then.' And he stood listening. Then he ran to the window and opened it. Gaydon followed him and drew up the blind. Both men listened and were puzzled. "'That's the sound of horseshoes,' said Gaydon. "'But there's another sound keeping pace with the horseshoes,' said Missay. O'Toole leaned on their shoulders, crushing them both down upon the sill of the window. 
"'It is very like the sound a gentleman makes "'when he reels home from a tavern.' Caden and Massey raised themselves with a common effort springing from a common thought, and shot O'Toole back into the room. "'What if it is?' began Massey. "'He was never drunk in his life,' said Caden. "'It's possible that he is reformed,' said O'Toole. And the three men precipitated themselves down the stairs. The drunkard was Wogan. He was drunk with fatigue and sleeplessness and pain, but he had retained just enough of his sober nature to spare a tired mare who had that day served him well. The first intimation he received that his friends were on the watch was O'Toole's voice bawling down the street to him. "'Is it a lottery? Tell me we're all rich men!' And he felt himself grasped in O'Toole's arms. "'I'll tell you more wonderful things than that,' stammered Wogan, "'when you have shown me the way to a stable.' "'There's one at the back of the house,' said Caden. "'I'll take the horse.' "'No,' said Wogan stubbornly, and would not yield the bridle to Gaydon. O'Toole nodded approval. "'There are two things,' said he. "'A man never trusts to his friends. "'One's his horse, to others his wife.' Wogan suddenly stopped and looked at O'Toole. O'Toole answered the look loftily. "'It is a little maxim of philosophy. "'I have others. "'They come to me in the night.' Massey laughed. Wogan walked on to the stable. It was a long building, and a light was still burning. Moreover, a groom was awake, for the door was opened before they had come near enough to knock. There were twelve stalls, of which nine were occupied, and three of the nine horses stood ready, saddled and bridled. Wogan sat down upon a corn-bin and waited while his mare was groomed and fed. The mare looked round once or twice in the midst of her meal, "'twisting her neck as far as her halter allowed. "'I am not gone yet, my lady,' said he. "'Take your time.' "'Wogan made a ghostly figure in the dim shadowy light. "'His face was of an extraordinary pallor. "'His teeth chattered, his eyes burned. "'Gaydon looked at him with concern and said to the groom, "'You can take the saddles off. "'We shall need no horses to-night.' "'The four men returned to the house.' Wogan went upstairs first. Gaydon held back the other two at the foot of the stairs. Not a word, not a question, till he has eaten, or we shall have him in bed for a twelve-month. Massey, do you run for a doctor? O'Toole, see what you can find in the larder. Wogan sat before the fire without a word, while O'Toole spread the table and set a couple of cold partridges upon it and a bottle of red wine. Wogan ate mechanically for a little— and afterwards with some enjoyment. He picked the partridges till the bones were clean, and he finished the bottle of wine. Then he rose to his feet with a sigh of something very like to contentment, and felt along the mantel-shelf with his hands. O'Toole, however, had foreseen his wants, and handed him a pipe newly filled. While Wogan was lighting the tobacco, Massey came back into the room with word that the doctor was out upon his last rounds, but would come as soon as he had returned home. The four men sat down about the fire, and Wogan reached out his hand and felt O'Toole's arm. "'It is you,' he said. "'There you are, the three of you, my good friends, and this is Schlesstadt. But it is strange.' and he laughed a little to himself and looked about the room, assuring himself that this indeed was Gaydon's lodging. "'You received a slip of paper?' said he. Four days back,' said Gaydon. 
and understood that we were to be ready good then it's not a lottery murmured o'toole and we've drawn no prizes ah but we are going to cried wogan we are safe here no one can hear us no one can burst in but i am sure of that Messet knows the trick that will make us safe from interruption eh Messet looked blankly at wogan why one can turn the key said he to be sure said wogan with a laugh of admiration for that device of which he had bethought himself and which he ascribed to Messet. if there's a key but if there's no key why a chair tilted against the door to catch the handle eh Messet locked the door not at all comprehending that device and returned to his seat we are to draw the greatest prize that ever was drawn resumed wogan and he broke off but is there a cupboard in the room no matter i forgot that this is gaydon's lodging and gaydon's not the man to overlook a cupboard gaydon jumped up from his chair but upon my word there is a cupboard he cried and crossing to a corner of the room he opened a door and looked in wogan laughed again as though gaydon's examination of the cupboard was a very good joke there will be nobody in it he cried gaydon will never feel a hand gripping the life out of his throat because he forgot to search a cupboard the cupboard was empty as it happened but gaydon had left the door of the street open when he went out to meet wogan there had been time and to spare for any man to creep upstairs and hide himself had there been a man in Schleschdaut that night minded to hear. Gaydon returned to his chair. "'We are to draw the biggest prize in all Europe,' said Wogan. "'There!' cried O'Toole. "'Will you be pleased to remember when next I have an idea that I was right?' "'But not for ourselves,' added Wogan. O'Toole's face fell. "'Oh, we are to hand it on to a third party,' said he. "'Yes.' "'Well, after all, that's quite of a piece with our luck.' "'Who is the third party?' asked Messet. "'The king.' Messet started up from his chair and leaned forward, his hands upon the arms. "'The king,' said O'Toole. "'To be sure, that makes a difference.' Gaydon asked quietly, "'And what is the prize?' the princess clementina said wogan we are to rescue her from her prison in innsbruck even gaydon was startled we four he exclaimed we four repeated Messet, staring at wogan his mouth was open his eyes started from his head he stammered in his speech we four against a nation against half europe o'toole simply crossed to a corner of the room picked up his sword and buckled it to his waist i am ready said he wogan turned round in his chair and smiled i know that said he so are we all all ready is not that so my friends we four are ready and he looked to Messet and to gaydon here's an exploit if we but carry it through which even antiquity will be at pains to match it's more than an exploit for it has the sanctity of a crusade on the one side there's tyranny, oppression, injustice, the one woman who most deserves a crown robbed of it, and on the other? There's the king, said Gaydon, and the three brief words seemed somehow to quench and sober Wogan. Yes, said he, there's the king, and we four to serve him in his need. We are few, but in that lies our hope. They will never look for four men, but for many, 
four men travelling to the shrine of loretto with the pope's passport may well stay at innsbruck and escape a close attention i am ready o'toole repeated but we shall not start to-night there's the passport to be got a plan to be arranged oh there's a plan said o'toole to be sure there's always a plan and he sat down again heavily as though he put no faith in plans Massey and Gaydon drew their chairs closer to Wogan's and instinctively lowered their voices to the tone of a whisper. "'Is Her Highness warned of the attempt?' asked Gaydon. "'As soon as I obtained the King's permission,' replied Wogan, "'I hurried to Innsbruck. There I saw Chateaudoux, the Chamberlain of the Princess's mother. Here is a letter he dropped in the cathedral for me to pick up.' He drew the letter from his fob and handed it to Gaydon. Gaydon read it and handed it to Massey. Massey nodded and handed it to O'Toole, who read it four times and handed it back to Gaydon with a flourish of the hand, as though the matter was now quite plain to him. "'Chateaudoux has a sweetheart,' he said sententiously. "'Very good. I do not think the worse of him.' Gaydon glanced a second time through the letter. "'The princess says that you must have the Prince Sobieski's written consent.' "'I went from Innsbruck to Olau,' said Wogan. "'I had some trouble, and the reason of my coming leaked out. "'The Countess de Berg suspected it from the first. "'She had a friend, an Englishwoman, Lady Featherstone, "'who was at Olau to outwit me.' "'Lady Featherstone,' said Massey, "'who can she be?' "'Wogan told them of his first meeting with Lady Featherstone on the Florence Road, "'but he knew no more about her, "'and not one of the three knew anything at all.' "'So the secret's out,' said Gaydon. "'But you outstripped it.' "'Barely,' said Wogan. Forty miles away I had last night to fight for my life.' "'But you have the Prince's written consent?' said Massey. "'I had last night, but I made a spill of it to light my pipe. "'There were six men against me. "'Had that been found on my dead body, "'why there was proof positive of our attempt, "'and the attempt foiled by sure safeguards.' As it is, if we lie still a little while, their fears will cease and the rumour become discredited. Massey leaned across Gaydon's arm and scanned the letter. But Her Highness writes most clearly she will not move without that sure token of her father's consent. Wogan drew from his breast pocket a snuff-box made from a single turquoise. Here's a token no less sure. It was Prince Sobieski's New Year's gift to me, a jewel unique and in a unique setting. This must persuade her. His father, great King John of Poland, took it from the Grand Vizier's tent when the Turks were routed at Vienna. O'Toole reached out his hand and engulfed the jewel. Sure, said he, it is a pretty sort of toy. It would persuade any woman to anything so long as she was promised it to hang about her neck. You must promise it to the princess, but not give it to her. No, lest when she has got it, she should be content to remain at Innsbruck. I know. You must promise it. Wogan bowed to O'Toole's wisdom and took back the snuff-box. I will not forget to promise it, said he. But there's another point, said Gaydon. Her Highness, the princess's mother, insists that a woman shall attend upon her daughter. "'and where shall we find a woman with the courage and the strength?' "'I have thought of that,' said Wogan. "'Messay has a wife. "'By the luckiest stroke in the world, "'Messay took a wife this last spring.' "'There was at once a complete silence. "'Gaydon stared into the fire. 
O'Toole looked with intense interest at the ceiling. Massey buried his face in his hands. Wogan was filled with consternation. Was Massey's wife dead, he asked himself? He had spoken lightly, laughingly, and he went hot and cold as he recollected the raillery of his words. He sat in his chair, shocked at the pain which he had caused his friends. Moreover, he had counted surely upon Mrs. Massey. Then Massey raised his head from his hands, and in a trembling voice he said slowly, "'My boy would only live to serve his king. Why should he not serve his king before he lives? My wife will say the like.' There was a depth of quiet feeling in his words which Wogan would never have expected from Massey, and the words themselves were words which he felt no man, no king, however much beloved, however generous to his servants, had any right to expect. They took Wogan's breath away, and not Wogan's only, but Gaydon's and O'Toole's too. A longer silence than before followed upon them. The very simplicity with which they had been uttered was startling, and made those three men doubt at the first whether they had heard aright. O'Toole was the first to break the silence. It is a strange thing that there never was a father since Adam who was not absolutely sure in his heart that his firstborn must be a boy. When you come to think philosophically about it, you'll see that if fathers had their way, the world would be peopled with sons with never a bit of a lass in any corner to marry them. O'Toole's reflection, if not a reason for laughter, made a pretext for it, at which all, even Massey, who was a trifle ashamed of his display of feeling, eagerly caught. Wogan held out his hand and clasped Massey's. That was a great saying, said he, but so much sacrifice is not to be accepted. Massey, however, was firm. His wife, he said, though naturally timid, could show a fine spirit on occasion, and would never forgive one of them if she was left behind. He argued until a compromise was reached. Massey would lay the matter openly before his wife, and the four crusaders, to use Wogan's term, would be bound by her decision. So you may take it that matter settled, said Massey. There will be five of us. Six, said Wogan. There's another man to join us, then, said Gaydon. I have it, your servant, Marnier. No, not Marnier, nor any man. "'Listen, it is necessary that when once Her Highness is rescued "'we must get so much start as will make pursuit vain. "'We shall be hampered with a coach, "'and a coach will travel slowly on the passes of Tyrol. "'The pursuers will ride horses. "'They must not come up with us. "'From Innsbruck to Italy, if we have never an accident, "'will take us at least the four days. "'It will take our pursuers three. "'We must have one clear day before Her Highness's evasion is discovered.' Now the chief magistrate of Innsbruck visits Her Highness's apartments twice a day, at ten in the morning and at ten of the night. The princess must be rescued at night, and if her escape is discovered in the morning she will never reach Italy. She will be behind the bars again. But the princess's mother will be left, said Gaydon. She can plead that her daughter is ill. The magistrate forces his way into the very bedroom, we must take with us a woman who will lie in Her Highness's bed with the curtains drawn about her, and a voice so weak with suffering that she cannot raise it above a whisper, with eyes so tired from sleeplessness she cannot bear a light near them. Help me in this. Name me a woman with the fortitude to stay behind. 
Gaydon shook his head. She will certainly be discovered. The part she plays in the escape must certainly be known. She will remain for the captors to punish as they will. I know no woman. Nay, said Wogan, you exaggerate her danger. Once the escape is brought to an issue, once her highness is in Bologna safe, the emperor cannot wreak vengeance on a woman. It would be too paltry. And now he made his appeal to Messay. No, my friend, Messay replied, I know no woman with the fortitude. But you do, interrupted O'Toole. So do I. There's no difficulty whatever in the matter. Mrs. Messay has a maid. Oh, said Gaydon. The maid's name is Jenny. Aha, said Wogan. She's a very good friend of mine. O'Toole, cried Messay indignantly. My wife's maid, a very good friend of yours? Sure she is, and you didn't know it, said O'Toole with a chuckle. I am the cunning man after all. She would do a great deal for me, would Jenny. But has she courage, asked Wogan. Faith, her father was a French grenadier, and her mother a vivandière. It would be a queer thing if she was frightened by a little matter of lying in bed and pretending to be someone else. But can we trust her with a secret, asked Gaydon. No, exclaimed Messay, and he rose angrily from his chair. My wife's maid, O'Toole, O'Toole, my wife's maid, did ever one hear the like? My friend, said O'Toole quietly, it seems almost as if you wished to reflect upon Jenny's character, which would not be right. Messay looked angrily at O'Toole, who was not at all disturbed. Then he said, "'Well, at all events, she gossips. We cannot take her. She would tell the whole truth of our journey at the first halt.' "'That's true,' said O'Toole. Then for the second time that evening he cried, "'I have an idea.' "'Well?' "'We'll not tell her the truth at all.' I doubt if she would come if we told it her. Jenny very likely has never heard of Her Highness the Princess, and I doubt if she cares a button for the King. Besides, she would never believe but that we are telling her a lie. No, we'll make up a probable, likely sort of story, and then she'll believe it to be the truth. I have it, cried Wogan. We'll tell her that we are going to abduct an heiress who is dying for love of O'Toole, and whose merciless parents are forcing her into a loveless, despicable marriage with a tottering pantaloon. O'Toole brought his hand down upon the arm of the chair. That's the very story, he cried. To be sure you are a great man, Charles, the most probable convincing story that was ever invented. Oh, but you'll hear Jenny sob with pity for the heiress and Lucius O'Toole when she hears it. It will be a bad day, too, for the merciless parents when they discover Jenny in her highness's bed. She stands six feet in her stockings. Six feet, exclaimed Wogan. In her stockings, returned O'Toole. Her height is her one vanity. Therefore, in her shoes, she is six feet four. Well, she must take her heels off and make herself as short as she can. You will have trouble, my friend, to persuade her to that, said O'Toole. "'Hush!' said Gaydon. He rose and unlocked the door. The doctor was knocking for admission below. Gaydon let him in, and he dressed Wogan's wounds with an assurance that they were not deep, and that a few days' quiet would restore him. "'I will sleep the night here, if I may,' said Wogan, as soon as the doctor had gone. "'A blanket and a chair will serve my turn.' They took him into Gaydon's bedroom, where three beds were ranged. "'We have slept in the one room and lived together since your message came four days ago,' said Gaydon. "'Take your choice of the beds, for there's not one of us has so much need of a bed as you.' 
Wogan drew a long breath of relief. Oh, but it's good to be with you, he cried suddenly, and caught at Gaydon's arm. I shall sleep tonight. How I shall sleep. He stretched out his aching limbs between the cool white sheets, and when the lamp was extinguished he called to each of his three friends by name to make sure of their company. O'Toole answered with a grunt on his right, Massey on his left, and Gaydon from the corner of the room. "'But I have wanted you these last three days,' said Wogan. "'Tomorrow, when I tell you the story of them, you will know how much I have wanted you.' They got, however, some inkling of Wogan's need before the morrow came. In the middle of the night they were wakened by a wild scream and heard Wogan whispering in an agony for help. They lighted a lamp and saw him lying with his hand upon his throat and his eyes starting from his head with horror. "'Quick,' said he, "'the hand at my throat. It's not the letter so much. It's my life they want.' "'It's your own hand,' said Gaydon and taking the hand he found it lifeless. Wogan's arm in that position had gone to sleep, as the saying is. He had waked suddenly in the dark with the cold pressure at his throat, and in the moment of waking was back again alone in the inn near Augsburg. Wogan indeed needed his friends. End of chapter 8